Shabbat Shalom, everyone. And uh, yeah, I mean, the title's the big giveaway, isn't it? We are moving into the season of Hanukkah. So I've entitled this, Why Hanukkah Was Important to Jesus, and it should be to you. If it was important to him, it should be important to us, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump right into our New Testament portion. And uh, this verse here is the verse that talks about Hanukkah. It says this, Now Hanukkah was taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking around in the temple inside the open porch of Solomon. So, with that being stated, Hanukkah is almost here. And everyone loves a great celebration, right? Everyone loves a great party. Hanukkah was and remains one of the most joyful celebrations in Israel's history, even until this present day. Gentile Christians, they're starting to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is Jewish and salvation is of the Jews. They're realizing that they are grafted into the olive tree of Israel, Romans 11, and are full citizens in the Israel of God, Ephesians chapter 2. In addition, Christians are surprised to discover that Hanukkah is in the New Testament. I remember for probably the first 10, 15 years of my born-again experience of, of, you know, following the Lord, that someone told me that Hanukkah was in the New Testament. And I thought, what? I've never heard that. I've never read that. What are you talking about? I mean, I was clueless when it came to this, even though I had spent a considerable amount of time in the Word of God over that first decade. And uh, I just was shocked. I thought, what, Hanukkah in the New Testament? Where is that, right? And a lot of Christians today uh, still don't realize that Hanukkah is right there in our New Testament. And uh, now that's becoming something that's, that's you know, getting widespread and, and people are beginning to understand it. So here, here's the big deal. Realizing that Hanukkah is in the New Testament should pique our interest in terms of what it is. Jesus took the time to travel to Jerusalem to be there during this celebration of Hanukkah. And so spiritual antennas are going up in the body of Christ. And people are beginning to say, hey, I really want to understand Jesus better. I want to understand Jesus in his historical context. I want to get back to that first century setting where I begin to understand more fully who he was and what his words meant when he spoke to his disciples. So in this teaching, we're going to explore a little bit deeper as we unpack the mystery of the reference to Hanukkah found in John chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. And I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised and enlightened with the illumination of this Jewish festival called Hanukkah. So let's uh, begin with the Hebraic backdrop to this Holy Week. Again, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23. If you want to put that slide back up, that'd be great, that first slide. So it says, Now Hanukkah was taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking around in the temple inside the open porch of Solomon. Now, the reason most Christians 
don't catch this is because most translations do not translate it into the word Hanukkah. They usually use the word dedication. And because they use the word dedication, most Christians miss the historical context of what this setting is all about. It's a reference to the eight-day celebration of Hanukkah. In fact, Hanukkah is actually a Hebrew word, and it means dedication. It refers to what happened in the days of the Maccabees when the Antichrist, that Daniel prophesied, came and almost destroyed all of Israel and their way of life. He overtook and looted Jerusalem. He defiled the temple in late December of that year, and then to memorialize his defilement, he commanded a pagan sacrifice to be made in the temple on the 25th of each month. Let me read this for you. From the first book of Maccabees, chapter 1, verse 59. On the 25th day of each month, sacrifice was offered on the altar erected on top of the altar of burnt offering. So he offered up, some scholars uh, suggest it was actually a pig. It was an unclean sacrifice to be sure, a pagan sacrifice. And he moved his own image into the temple area and built an altar on top of the altar of burnt offering. And it's there every 25th day of each month that he would sacrifice to the gods. This was horrible, shocking, in every way appalling. Now Daniel prophesied that this Antichrist would fling truth to the ground and that he would oppress the people of God. And I want to list out for you some of the things that he did, some of the main things he did, because this Antichrist is like all other Antichrists. They all have the same agenda. They take different strategies in order to get there, but it's the same agenda. It never changes. This is the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit of lawlessness that we're talking about. So here's some of the things that he legislated in order to oppress the people of God. He says, you shall not circumcise your sons. I want to tell you right now, circumcision is the very symbol of salvation. If you go back to how God ordered Abraham, his descendants, and the Gentiles in his house to circumcise themselves, when you read that passage, Genesis 15, 16, and 17, you'll discover that that circumcision is a symbol of the good news that God has promised to us a Savior. The promised seed of Abraham is the one who will save us. And that's the promise of God. And because Abraham and Sarah didn't quite believe that God could do it because they were past their childbearing ages, well, Sarah came up with a plan. He's gonna, she's going to give uh, to Abraham her young maiden, Hagar, in order to bring about the child of promise. And so Abraham used his flesh to try to secure the promise of God. And God told Abraham, no, your son will not be heir. Your son is not the promised child. My promise is by faith, not the works of your flesh, Abraham. And because you tried to use your flesh to bring about the promise of God, you're going to circumcise it now. 
So that circumcision of the flesh for all the male children is a constant reminder that the promised child that will come and save us, that salvation itself is by faith in the promised child. It's not by our works, the works of our flesh, but rather by grace through faith in the promise that God has given. So that circumcision was a symbol of salvation. And this Antichrist said, you're not going to do that anymore. It was a strike against the whole preservation of the concept of how God would save us. And he wanted to remove that from the people of God. Number two, he said, you shall reject and neglect and forget the Sabbath. They could no longer keep the Sabbath. He made that punishable by death. This was, this was an outrageous tyrant who did everything he could to stop the people of Israel from exercising their religion. You'll note that the Antichrist spirit is always trying to move uh, uh, um, our religious rights, to take our religious liberties and move them back, to suspend them to restrict them. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. You can, you can well, I'll get down there in a minute. Go, going on, number three, you shall reject, neglect, and forget the festivals and the holy days. They no longer could keep and celebrate the holy days that God had given them through Moses. Number four, you shall reject, neglect, and forget the dietary laws. You're no longer going to observe the laws that God gave you concerning your diets. In fact, we're going to make you eat unclean foods. And then finally, he legislated that they would embrace pagan holy days and pagan forms of worship. In short, these are some of the main things he did back in the days of the Maccabees. And this is what Daniel prophesied. He said the Antichrist would accomplish all of this. But ultimately, the Antichrist, this little horn of Greece, would be removed by God himself. And in the prophecy that Daniel gives, it would take about approximately three years. In the end, God would deliver his people once again. The Jewish people would be given back their land, their cities, would be given back Jerusalem, and most importantly, they'd be given back their temple. The Jewish people would then cleanse their temple and rededicate it and their lives to the glory of God. This is exactly what happened and is recorded for all the world to read in the first and second books of the Maccabees. This rededication of their lives, this rededication of their temple would be memorialized in an eight-day celebration called Hanukkah, which actually means dedication in reference to God's promise to return that to his people. I want to go to the second book of Maccabees, chapter 10. I want to work down through this chapter and uh, hit some high points. This is chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Now, Maccabees and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city 
They tore down the altars that had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. I want you to note in the beginning of this passage what it says. The Maccabees who decided to obey God rather than men, to, be, to obey God rather than the Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, it says that the Lord led them on. The Lord led them through the crisis. The Lord kept them and preserved them through this crisis. And the Lord actually is the one who allowed them to recover the temple and the city. This was a tremendous victory. They were so small compared to this king's army. It was a superpower. It was the superpower of the day. And Israel, the Maccabees, those who were following them, was such a small group. This is the story that we see over and over in the scripture of how God takes a few and overthrows the many. This is the story of great hope that would give us, should give us great hope. Victory is coming. I want to encourage you with this. We're under tremendous attack. Our liberties have been pushed back, restricted in ways that we could not imagine. Justice Alito of the Supreme Court had just been saying just the other day, and I'm just paraphrasing, that, that, that everyone is pretty much taken back by all the various ways that we have lost our liberties under this pandemic and that that should cause concern for every American citizen. And what he's alluding to, by the way, is this, that we have these certain inalienable rights, like the right to exercise our religion freely without restriction, from the federal, state, or local governments. These are rights given to us by God. And look at the restrictions they've put on us. We can't even meet. Can you imagine that? You would think 500 million people are dead. It's the Spanish flu outbreak. Yeah, there's over, I think, a million people. It doesn't even begin to compare with the Spanish flu. And yet we've shut everything down, and churches can't even gather anymore. Can you think about that for a moment and understand What's at stake? And I don't want to get into the weeds about the political aspects of this, but I do want to say this much. This is not the end. We have seen the loss of liberties grow and grow and grow. I have no idea where this train stops. But I have great faith in God, that God will give us what we need to gather back together and rededicate our lives and our places to the living God. So... Victory's coming for the people of God in our country and in other countries as well. So hold on. Let's live by faith and not by sight. God's ways will take you by surprise every time. God says, your ways are not like my ways. My ways are different. They're counterculture. They're counterintuitive. So it's really, really, really hard to try to figure out what's, what, what God's going to do next, right? It's counterintuitive. But know this for sure, that he's for you, not against you. That even though you feel the oppression and you're saying at times, God, where are you? It's okay. He's on the throne. Look at our ancestors. Look at the stories, not only of our biblical salvific history. Look at our nation as a nation and all that he did from the Revolutionary War all the way down through the Civil War, through the Civil Rights Movement. I'm telling you. God is full of surprises, and we can trust Him.
to shake this nation, to bring the judgments that this nation has beckoned and needs in order to repent, know that he is in control and that we can trust him, that he'll see us through our difficulties. I often think of the pharaohs of Egypt and all that they went through with those 10 plagues, or, or 10, 10 miracles. Um, and I want to I point this out. I want to point this out. Uh, the whole definition of miracles is interesting because you have these transcendent miracles where the laws of nature are actually uh, superseded. And that truly is a transcendent miracle, like Jesus walking on the water or the splitting of the Red Sea. Well, I should say, let, let, let's just say Jesus walking on the water. That's a transcendent miracle. Uh, when God uses nature, though, in a spectacular way, um, that's also considered a miracle. His direct divine movement through nature is also classified as a miracle. So when we look at the miracles in Egypt, you'll know this, note that some are transcendent and some are actual um, his orchestration of natural phenomenon on a very profound level. But needless to say, it surprised everyone over and over and over as God brought judgment to the pharaohs of Egypt and to the gods of Egypt. And I believe that God is shaking up the nations and specifically America and that he's judging America in a way that's, that's much greater than anything I've seen in my lifetime. It's just the beginning. I think there's more signs and wonders. So, so like I said back in March, the worst is yet to come. Now, the good news is it, it'll run its course, and then God, like usual, will pour out his grace on his people. He will spare his people. He will raise up his people. I believe that. We see that in Persia under Queen Esther and Mordecai. We see that again in Greece with uh, the Maccabees. We see that again in the fall of Rome and the spread of Christianity through, through the West. It's just amazing. Today in America, we have Marxists and a move towards Marxism, where the state becomes God, takes the place of God, and the state is going to meet everyone's needs. Marxism, by, by its very, very philosophy, is anti-Christ, anti-God. It supersedes God. And they're everywhere. You see them. You see the rise of Marxism in America, in our politics today. And also the globalists, the globalists who are really undermining who we are as a nation. You know, God said in Genesis, I'm the one that has given the nations their boundaries. I scattered the people and I gave them their nations and their boundaries. You know, God's a nationalist, if you will. And if you think about it, if nations have to compete with nations for people and resources, that's going to cause everything to rise. That, that's a good thing, all right? The globalists... It's just Marxism on a global level. It will result in massive poverty rates and, and, and oppression like you've never seen it before. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm against globalism. I'm against Marxism. Give me a biblical constitutional republic. That's what God has given early to Israel and is refined down through the ages. And that's the thing that's going to bring the most blessing to the most people. So, Today's Marxists and globalists in America and throughout the world are about to learn, they're about to learn what all of their former elitists experienced 
shock and awe, blood, fire, plagues, misery, and widespread death. They are the enemies of God. They're the enemies of his kingdom. And they're the enemies of our nation. They're the enemies of the people around the world. Keep your faith steadfast in Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Now is the time for perseverance. Now is the time to exercise great faith. God is on the move. You know why the Bible is banned in a number of communist countries? It's banned because it is the book of liberty. It's the book that, that, that fans the flames of liberty. God made us in his image. He's free. He pursued what was in his heart that made him happy. And he says, you're free. Pursue what makes you happy. And that's the biggest threat to socialism and communism today. And that's why the Bible's banned in so many places. They know it's not only the seedbed, seedbed of liberty, it's the seedbed of revolution. That people will rise up and they'll overthrow tyrants as they grasp for the right that God has given them to be free in their constitution and who they are. So let me get back to the second book of Maccabees, chapter 10, verse 3. It says they went on to purify the sanctuary. They made another altar of sacrifice. Then, striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifice after a lapse of two years, and they offered incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of presence. In short, they cleaned everything up. You know, they, they, they got they're all rid of all the defilement, and they, they dedicated the temple back to God. The temple represented the presence of God, God's dwelling presence with them. They were attending to their king. When they had done this, they fell prostrate, verse 4, and implored the Lord, that they might never again fall into such misfortunes, but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. Verse 5, It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place. That is, on the 25th day of the same month, which is Chislev. Now, Chislev is the Hebrew month that corresponds to our month of December. Chislev, December. So what day did they consecrate the altar in the temple? On the 25th of what corresponds to our month, December. Think about that for a moment. Think about what that means for a moment. They're coming back to God. They're committing their ways to God. They're saying, God, we're going to walk in your ways. We're going to be true to the covenant. It's on that day that they dedicated the altar to God, the 25th of Chislev, which is approximately corresponding to our month of December. It goes on to say, they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of booths, that's Sukkot, remembering how not long before, during the festival of booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Are you catching this? What is taking place? They got a great victory. 
by the hand of God, many miracles took place. And now they've rededicated the temple and altar of God on the 25th of Chislev. And they started celebrating. And they decided, you know what, let's do this for eight days. Because it was just a couple months ago that we were hiding out like wild animals in caves. We missed Sukkot. We didn't get to celebrate Sukkot. So let's celebrate eight days now. Let's recapture the celebration of Sukkot. But it's going to be a new celebration renamed Hanukkah. So, so what we have in this celebration is the celebration of the festival of Hanukkah when they rededicated the temple to God. And they patterned that after the eight days of Sukkot. 2 Maccabees chapter 10.8 They decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. The reason Hanukkah has eight days is because Sukkot has eight days. They simply took the eight-day number from Sukkot, and they now created a civil holiday in honor of God's faithfulness and deliverance, His grace and His mercy to bring them back and give them their promised land. This became known as the festival of Hanukkah, or dedication, the week that they had rededicated their temple and their lives to God. It was celebrated for approximately 200 years before the event we're reading about in John chapter 10. 200 Hanukkahs have come and gone by the time Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the celebration of Hanukkah. It had become an elaborate eight-day celebration with light as the main symbol. Probably the most joyous celebration of the fall. Food, drink, dancing, worship, fellowship, rivers of joy. It was an amazing week every year during this festive season called Hanukkah. Think of this, the main, the main symbol is light. They lit these huge menorahs in the temple precinct. All the families had little menorahs. And the whole city lit their menorahs for eight days. Josephus, the, uh, the uh, historian of the day, said that Jerusalem was aglow at night with all of the menorahs. You could see from miles coming up to the city, the glow of the city due to all of the menorahs that were, were lit in every home and especially the giant menorahs that were in the, the temple sanctuary. They said it was just a glow with light. This whole week was just one big celebration. And they, they, just, they just were so grateful that God had spared them, watched over them, and gave them back their land, their cities, and their temple. This is the celebration of Hanukkah. This is the context of John chapter 10. Let's read it one more time. John chapter 10, 22 through 23. Now Hanukkah was taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking around in the temple inside the open porch of Solomon. So here's some big questions. Why did Jesus take time to stay in Jerusalem in the winter? Did it have anything to do with Hanukkah or was it purely coincidental? 
Jesus the Jew from Galilee, wanting to attend one of the biggest festivals in Israel's annual calendar? Think about that. If he was coming from the Galilee, it would have took two to three days to travel to Jerusalem in the winter. That's a significant journey to be in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. Other, other scholars say that he actually never went back to Galilee, that what he did is after Sukkot, instead of going back to, to Galilee, which was kind of his home base of ministry, he decided to stay several weeks in Jerusalem waiting for the Feast of Hanukkah. Either way you slice it, this implies that he intended to be there in the temple during Hanukkah. That's significant. You say, okay, but that still does not prove that he was there specifically for Hanukkah. Agreed. At this point, in the two verses, yeah, it's only implied. But as we work down through the immediate context, you are going to see that he is there because it is Hanukkah. And he is going to use the meaning of Hanukkah to reveal something about himself that will be a game changer from this point on with the religious and civil leaders of his day. And if I'm right about this, and I'm confident that I'm right, I'm not right about all things, but pretty solid on this. What does this mean for us today? Who claim to be the followers of Jesus. You see, if Hanukkah was important to Yeshua, should it not also be important to us who believe in him? To us who are grafted into the Jewish olive tree of Israel, Romans 11? To us who are called, at, as Gentiles, full citizens in the Israel of God along with the Jewish believers? Shouldn't that be important to us as well? Listen to me. This is a part of our history now. As believers in Jesus, we're grafted in. We're a part of Israel. We're connected with the Jewish believers. So their history becomes our history. They become our people. Their prophecies and fulfillments become also our history and our heritage. So let's get our game on. Let's jump into our Jewish roots. Let's stand on our status as citizens of the Israel of God. It is the great and joyful expedition for all who believe, to the Jew first as well as to the Gentile. So we have some study guides. You can go to the link below and get your study guide to this uh, sermon. We also have some other resources for you as well. And I want to encourage you as we move into next week, because I'm going to do part two next week. I'm going to encourage you to read Daniel chapter 8 through 11. These are the prophecies that uh, surround Hanukkah. And then use the link uh, below in the description or in the study guide uh, in order to go and read the book of the Maccabees. I, I encourage you this week to read at least the first five chapters of the first book of the Maccabees. That will give you the big general picture of the fulfillment of the prophecies that Daniel gave. So get ready for part two next week. It'll, it'll be coming soon. As I close today, I just want to close with Revelation 14, 12 once again. I want to encourage you that in the midst of this difficult time that we're going through, now is the time to show pers perseverance. It's easy to serve God in the good times. It's easy to serve God when there's no oppression, no persecution. But when there's big challenges, well, 
then we get to see what our faith is all about. I want to encourage you to draw on the Spirit of God and to persevere as the saints of God in keeping the commandments of God and your faith in Jesus. As we close today with the Arona benediction, I want to encourage those who want to hang out a little bit in the chat room. I'm going to do some Q&A for you concerning Hanukkah. So get your Hanukkah questions ready, and uh, we're going to hit the ground running in just a few minutes. But at this time, I want to go ahead and give a formal close to our uh, Shabbat service. So Alexia, if you'll come forward and lead us in the Aaronic benediction. Shabbat Shalom. Please stand for the Aaronic benediction. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And we add, In the name of Yeshua our Messiah, the Prince of Peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Receive now the name of Yahweh. Shalom. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach, Sar Shalom, Shabbat Shalom.